there is a story uh, that at some point in a worship service, in a Presbyterian worship service, there was a man in the congregation who began to be moved by the Spirit. And in the midst of that service, that man yelled out, Amen. And the people around him looked uncomfortable. And then a little bit later in the service, even louder, he said, Hallelujah. And the people around him were even more uncomfortable. Uh, and then finally, later in the service, the man cried out, Praise Jesus. At this point, an usher got involved. And so, uh, the usher comes down to the man, and he leans over, and he says, Sir, you need to control yourself. And the man said, Well, I can't help it. I got religion. And the usher, with some exasperation in his voice, said, Well, sir, you didn't get it here. I think that it is very easy for us to imagine that there is a certain kind of person who fits with us, right? A, a certain kind of person that fits into our style of worship or our church community. Um, there are sort of the right people and the wrong people for us. Now, Presbyterians have often lived into this. Um, we have some tradition of being… Um, maybe the, uh, the place where the, influent, the uh, affluent and the influential are expected to attend. And, and sometimes I think we can get into this trap of trying to define who the right people are and then trying to make the wrong people uncomfortable. Uh, we do this really easy ways that maybe we don't even notice, right? We, we wear certain clothes to church. Uh, and then perhaps in some churches we think, well, if you're not dressed uh, in a certain way, which requires a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time, then maybe you don't fit in this space. Or um, we have code words that we use, right? Oh, sin and grace and double imputation and um, tulip and all things that like maybe make sense to some of us and leave some other people on the outside. Uh, Sometimes we have silent disapproval about the people around us who are not behaving the way we expect them to behave. Um, quick side note, this uh, weekend I was at a soccer game, uh, and I tried the silent disapproval tactic. There was a gentleman next to me watching my, our kid's soccer game, and he had his phone on, and he was loudly listening to a football game uh, on the speakerphone while we were watching the kid's soccer game. And so I tried the silent disapproval real hard, and that didn't have a lot of effect. I also tried the, the snide comments to my wife just loud enough for him to hear it so he would stop. That didn't work either, so I exhausted all my options, and I gave up. Okay. Um, Anyway, I don't know why that was relevant. Um, we, we in the church sometimes um, try to make people feel uncomfortable if we don't think they quite fit in. Sometimes we do this um, quietly. Sometimes we do it right out in the open. Uh, I had a, a true story of another church that uh, I know well, a Presbyterian church in a community that is um, multiracial, but this church tended to be largely white and their pastoral staff really wanted to see more diversity in the congregation. And one day in a worship service, they saw a young African-American man um, wearing a baseball cap walk in and sit in the back row of the church. And the pastor was like, yes, that's great. Like, we're, 
you know, we're starting to make some, some differences. We're starting to bring some other people in. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, he noticed an usher come and speak to that young man, and then the usher and the young man left, and the young man didn't come back. And afterwards, after the service was over, he went to talk to the usher and said, what happened? I was so excited that that young man came in. And the usher said, well, I told him that you can't wear hats in our church. If he didn't take his hat off, he'd have to leave. We define who are the right sort of people and the wrong sort of people, and we make some just uncomfortable enough that they don't fit with us anymore. Uh, there's an old poem by Dean Jonathan Smith that I uh, um, think is amusing. He says, um, this could have been written by Presbyterians, we are God's chosen few, all others will be damned. There's room enough in hell for you, we can't have heaven crammed. Uh, I, I think that worldview matches the worldview of the Pharisees in our story. Uh, it matches this idea that there are right people and wrong people and that we only want a certain sort in our community. So when the Pharisees see Jesus sitting with the wrong sort of people, they are very upset and they go to His disciples. Notice they don't go to Jesus. They go to His disciples and they say, what is He doing? Doesn't He know those are the wrong kind of people? Jesus comes back with two really important ideas for us today. Uh, the first is, He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Doctors don't wait for people to become healthy till they can come visit for office visits. Jesus isn't interested in waiting for people to come holy before they can enter His presence. Jesus has this this wild new idea that the purpose of His reign and His kingdom is that He's going to find sick people and make them healthy, not find healthy people and run away from the sick. Uh, and, and this is really a radical digression from the way the Pharisees and the religious, religious people of Jesus' day thought. So, just a, a quick sidebar. So, the Pharisees um, are a, a group of religious leaders that um, ultimately become sort of rabbinical Judaism today. Jesus was theologically a Pharisee, right? Pharisees believed in life after death. They believed in the authority of the whole Hebrew Bible. They believed in the spiritual world in terms of angels and demons. So, there's nothing the Pharisees believe that Jesus doesn't believe. However, um, their practice was that they thought the way we can stay close to God is not only will we be holy, but we will push out anyone who is not. Anyone who doesn't measure up in our sort of religious standards needs to get pushed out of the community so that the whole community is not judged by God again, so that we're not cast into exile again, so that we can be set free from the Romans, so that the Messiah can come. Their idea was we have to stay clean and stay pure so that um, we don't make mistakes and God doesn't punish all of us. And so, into that worldview, Jesus comes and says, no, I have a different idea about what God wants. I have a different idea of, of the purpose of our faith and our ministry, um, that there's this new content, this new central message uh, that God is a God who comes for the wrong sort of people, that God is a God who comes for the sick and for the sinner. This is, if you will, the new wine that Jesus is talking about. 
the wine that ultimately will come to reflect the blood of a God who dies for sinners. Then we get this second story about fasting in this chapter, and uh, Jesus deals with the fasting topic, but then He makes a larger and more important point. He says, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Why? Because the wine swells and the wineskin, um, which is already stretched to its limits, will burst, and you'll lose the wine and you'll lose the skin at the same time. He says, you've got to put new wine in new wineskins. In other words, this new message that I'm bringing about God's heart for the lost and God's desire to care for sinners and God's interest in the wrong sort of people, that's got to come with a new system, a new structures, new behaviors that help us live that out, right? It's new content and it's new forms. If the old system was about purity and not making mistakes, the new system is about purity and being forgiven for our mistakes. In the old system, there's our people and there's everyone else, but in Jesus' system, we have a kingdom that grows from conquered hearts. It is the former enemies of God who will make up the citizens of heaven. By the way, this isn't a new idea. This is the idea all the way back in the Old Testament. God is consistent. We're not always good at understanding what God thinks, but God is pretty consistent in His identity. God's always been one who was interested in turning His former enemies into the citizens of His kingdoms. Did you notice that in our story in Exodus today? Uh, I've mentioned before, but I I think maybe one of the most important verses, not the most important, but one of the most important verses that we overlook in the story of Exodus is chapter 12, verse 38. So we're told in verse 37 that the Israelites begin to leave the promised… I'm sorry, leave Egypt heading towards the promised land. They're leaving the land of slavery. There's 600,000 men on foot plus children and women. And then the next verse says, a mixed crowd also went up with them. A mixed crowd. That's Egyptians. I mean, we only got two groups here. We got Israelites and we got Egyptians in this story. And the Israelites are them. And the mixed crowd that goes with them, that's the people who have been convicted by God of genocide. People that have been convicted by God of slavery people that have been convicted by God of worshiping idols and false gods, God says, hey, I actually would like some of them too to be my people. What's really striking is we never hear about them again in the story because from this point on, they become part of the companies of the Lord. There is no distinction between those who were biologically Israelite and those who were biologically Egyptian. After this moment in the story, they're just all God's people. They're just all considered to be Israel. That's what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. Jesus goes to uh, the people that are least respected in His world. So, uh, I don't know that um, today we have like an incredible love for the IRS. Maybe some of us like appreciate the work they do, and um, we certainly appreciate having things like roads and police officers and soldiers. Um, Nobody really loves giving their money away, but we like supporting our country. Um, But you got to understand that the way they thought about tax collectors in the time of Jesus was radically different for, for two main reasons. The first reason is that tax collectors in Jesus' day were largely thieves. 
I don't mean literally thieves. I, I mean that they stole from the people they collected taxes from. So there's not a tax table that you can go to that says, hey, I made this much money, I owe this much taxes. You just have to pay whatever the tax collector charges you, right? Kind of like when somebody comes and does work on your house, right? You're just, you just got to pay whatever they charge you. Uh, and the, the tax collectors would often charge significantly more than they had to pass on to their superiors. That's how they made money. Uh, and they made a lot of money. It was a good job to be a tax collector in terms of income. And so most people consider the tax collectors to be dishonest, um, sort of immoral people, thieves, if you will, who stole from their neighbors. The other big problem with being a tax collector is that very often you were collecting taxes for Rome, and Rome was the nation that had conquered your people and was basically keeping you under oppression. And so if you were working as a Roman tax collector, you're considered to be a traitor to your nation. And so Jesus goes to this guy named Levi, uh, this, uh, and this same story shows up in the Gospel of Matthew, and this guy's name is Matthew. So most of us think that Levi and Matthew are the same guy, okay? He goes up to somebody named Levi in this story, working at his tax booth, and he says, follow me. Same thing he said to Peter and Andrew and James and John, right, when they're fishing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. However, the consequences are a little bit different, if you decide to quit your fishing job and follow Jesus for a while and it doesn't pan out, you can always go back to fishing. If you decide to walk off the job as a tax collector in the middle of your workday, you can't ever go back to doing that again. Levi leaves his post, he follows Jesus, and then in his home, he invites the sort of people that he knows to come meet Jesus and the disciples, many tax collectors and sinners. The wrong kind of people have always been the right ones to God. And so I wonder if perhaps uh, the calling of the church uh, is to be looking both um, for the new wine of Christ and the new wineskins in which it is organized. Maybe the work of the church is to be a people who would fit in at this kind of party. Thomas Long tells the story of staying in a motel in a large city and finding a uh, notice posted on the elevator door, party tonight, room 210, 8 p.m., everyone invited. He says he imagined the odd assortment of people who might show up, tired salesmen and bored people on their vacations and weary travelers, and the curious, all looking for a break in their individual tedium and a little festivity, and not wanting to be left out of something exciting. Turned out, unfortunately, the sign was a hoax, a practical joke. But he said, for a brief moment, those of us staying at the motel were tantalized by the possibility that there just might be a party going on somewhere to which we were all invited a party where it didn't make much difference who we were when we walked in the door or what motivated us to come, a party we could come to out of boredom, loneliness, curiosity, responsibility, eagerness to be in fellowship, or simply out of a desire to see what was happening, a party where it didn't matter nearly as much what got us in the door as what would happen to us after we arrived. Jesus calls us to be a people who have uh, this new content, this new story, this new wine uh, that 
that God is a God for not just the right but also the wrong people and who share that in new ways, in new wineskins. One of the things that uh, our church has worked over the last few years, last year or so, has been um, we started a second worship service. We've been doing a, a 6 p.m. worship service on Sunday nights that's kind of contemporary in nature, guitars and drums. Uh, and our desire in doing that was entirely to help new people who perhaps might not feel like they fit in this environment to come and worship in a different time, in a different style. <clears throat> our goal in that was not to find Christians that had other churches and get them to come to our church, nor was it to move our members from um, a morning service to an evening service. Um, we, we sometimes call that in the church world, we call that trading sheep, right? Our goal wasn't to trade sheep. Um, our goal was to bring in people that aren't yet sheep, right? Our goal was to bring in people that might even be considered enemies of sheep because the promise of Scripture is that one day the wolf shall live with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the lion will feed together, and a little child shall lead them. One of the central tasks of the Christian faith and the Christian church is to say, hey, how do we make sure we're not just reaching out to our kind of people? We want to reach out to God's kind of people. So, one of my favorite stories uh, is a story um, from a book by Tony Campolo called The Kingdom of of God as a party. Uh, it's a story I'm trying to tell more often because I think it's one, I want it to be one of our stories. Right? I want it to be one of our church's stories. Um, so maybe you remember this, but if not, um, I, I hope it gets to the heart of who we want to be as a family of God. Tony Campolo tells um, that one night he was in Honolulu and he couldn't sleep. He was there for, Tony Campolo is a pastor and an author and a theologian, uh, and he was uh, in Honolulu for some pastoral conference, but he couldn't sleep. So at 3.30 in the morning, he begins wandering through the streets of Honolulu looking for something to eat, and finally he finds uh, this one shop that's open. Uh, it's like a greasy diner, like ultimate greasy diner. He says uh, the restaurant is so gross that he's afraid to pick up the menu because he doesn't know what might crawl out of it, right? But he sits down at the, at the booth, and um, this very large person comes up to him, and he says, you know, what do you want? And he says, I'd, I'd like a, a coffee and a donut, please. And the guy says, okay, and he pours him a coffee, and he wipes his hand on his apron, and he grabs a donut off the shelf. No tongs, right? Just grabs it off the shelf and hands it to Tony, and uh, Tony's sitting there munching on his donut and drinking his coffee. And he says, while he's there at about 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open and um, sort of uncomfortably in marched eight or nine loud and very boisterous prostitutes. And it was pretty obvious who they were um, from not just their dress but their conversation. And he said he was extremely uncomfortable and decided, hey, I probably need to make my exit. And so, I, as he's paying for his food and trying to quickly finish his donut and coffee, um, he overhears a conversation between these women. And the woman immediately behind him says, hey, guess what? Um, tomorrow's my birthday. And one of her friends says kind of in a sneer, oh, you want us to like do a big celebration and get you a cake? Are you expecting us to sing happy birthday to you? And the first young woman says, no, no, not at all. Don't be like that. Like, don't, don't make fun of me again. 
I never imagined you were going to do that. I was just making conversation. In fact, I've never had a birthday celebration, so of course I don't expect you guys to be the ones to throw me one. Just, just never mind. Tony says as he heard this conversation, he stopped leaving, and he decided to stay a little bit longer, and he waited until that group of women left, and then he um, looked to the guy who was working, the very large man working um, behind the counter, and he said, uh, sir, does that group of women come in here every night? He said, yep, yep, they're here pretty much every night at this time. And he said, and that particular woman who was right behind me, is she usually with them? And the, the guy said, yep, 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 that's Agnes. Agnes is a real sweetheart. Yep, she's here pretty much every night. And Tony said, um, hey, I, I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. Now, I have a crazy idea. What do you think um, that perhaps we could throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? Tony says, uh, for the first time that night, the bartender cook guy cracked a smile, and he said, wow, that's a great idea. I really like that idea. And he called his wife, who was back in the kitchen, and he asked her to come out, and he said, hey, this guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. So his wife came out and said, that's a great idea. I love it. Agnes is a sweetheart. We should do it. He said, look, if it's okay with you, I'll come back tomorrow, uh, and I'll be around 2.30 a.m., and I'll decorate the place, and I'll bring a birthday cake. And the guy working there whose name turned out to be Harry said, no way. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll take care of it. So at 2.30 a.m. the next morning, Tony showed up back at the diner in Honolulu. He said he'd picked up some pre-made decorations, and he'd made some of his own, just like Happy Birthday, Agnes, on some large pieces of cardboard, and he decorated that whole diner um, as nice as it had ever looked. He said the woman who worked behind in the kitchen must have gotten word out on the street because by 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu was crammed into that diner, <laughs> wall-to-wall prostitutes, and Tony. He said at 3.30 on the dot… The door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. He said, I had everybody ready. After all, he was kind of the MC, uh, And he said, when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. Never in his life, he said, had he ever seen anyone so flabbergasted or shocked or overwhelmed. Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled a little bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to one of the stools along the counter, everyone started singing, happy birthday. And as they came to the end of the song, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes started to get a little teary. Then when the birthday cake and all the candles was carried out, she lost it, just started sobbing. Harry, bringing the cake, kind of gruffly mumbles, blow out the candles, Agnes. Agnes, you got to blow out the candles. Agnes, we can't eat till you blow out the candles. If you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And she just can't. So he blows out the candles. Then he hands her a knife and he says, Agnes, you got to cut the cake. Cut the cake so that we can eat, Agnes. And he says, Agnes looked down at the cake and then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you? I mean, is it okay if I kind of, is it okay if I keep the cake for a little while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, Sure. I mean, it's okay. It's, if you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. She said, can I? I only live a couple streets down. I, I could be there and be back really fast. I just want to show some people in my house. Um, can I take the cake? I'll be right back. And so she got up 
and she picked up the cake, carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, and walked slowly toward the door. Tony says, we all just stood there motionless as she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. And not knowing what else to do, he broke the silence by saying, how about we pray? And he prayed for Agnes. He prayed for her salvation. He prayed her life would be changed. He prayed that God would be good to her. And when he finished, Harry leaned over the counter with a little bit of hostility in his voice, and he said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you go to? And he said, you know, sometimes God gives you the right words. He said, uh, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for hookers at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment, and then he almost sneered as he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. But if there was, I would join it. See, the most dangerous thing in the old system, the system before Jesus, the system of the Pharisees, the system that sometimes we fall into, the most dangerous thing in the old system would be to hang around people who might drag you down. But the most dangerous thing in the new system, the system of Jesus and of Tony, uh, the system of the people of the Exodus, the most dangerous thing in the new system is to be isolated from people who need to be picked up. This is really important. Jesus is not inviting sinners to join Him and continue to sin. Jesus is not suggesting uh, that our lifestyles are perfect as they are. He is inviting us, as He invited Levi, to follow Him which means to model our lives after His, what makes His actions radical are not that He ignores or permits sinful behavior, it's that He believes sinners can change and become righteous with His help. Jesus wants you to follow Him. He wants you in worship and in ID and at life and reading the Bible on your own and praying before meals because He wants you to follow Him. But He also wants you at hotels and greasy spoon diners. He wants you on soccer teams and on swim teams and on marching bands and at company picnics. He wants you training staff members at gas stations and learning the names of food pantry guests and babysitting for sick people's children and helping single moms move and teaching kids who have no church background and no idea how to behave in church that Jesus loves them because hallelujah that they're here at all. Jesus wants us to find new wineskins to carry the blood of Christ to the world at this new table where all are welcome, where there are no right kind of people, there's just people like us, where there is a new kingdom made up of the redeemed and the reclaimed and the rescued, a kingdom that is like a party. May that kingdom come. Thanks be to God. Amen.